So starting in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. So we're kind of picking up at, uh, it's kind of a little shift in tone here that we're coming into. Uh, the last the last week we looked at, we looked at, um, you know, in, or in the last chapter, we looked at Jesus having this encounter with this uh, man with a demon who had uh, attacked him, you know, had, had ran at him screaming and shrieking on the eastern shore of Galilee. And uh, immediately after that, as he passes back over to the other side, um, Jesus gets out of the boat on the western side of Galilee and is immediately you know, met by thousands and thousands. And so no doubt Jesus has been tired. He's been ministering just nonstop for three days. And in the process there, as he's making his way, uh, a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, comes and he uh, has a situation where his daughter is, is, you know, at the brink of death. She's, she's at her last breath. And Jairus, in his, in his desperation, comes to Jesus and asks him to come and to heal his daughter. <clears throat> now, Jesus agrees to go with him. And then and, uh, immediately after that, on the way, as they're passing through the crowd, a woman who uh, has a flow of blood, or the text calls it, you know, it's basically uh, from the source of... Uh, you know, they possibly think it could be a uterine tear, something that she's been experiencing for years and years. This woman uh, who, who's been bleeding for 12 years uh, without stopping, who is a social outcast, who is unclean, she reaches out and she touches Jesus in the crowd. And Jesus, he pauses there. He stops, he stops like the entourage as they're all trying to make their way to Jairus' house. And he takes time to spend time with this woman and to find out, not just to, to let her be healed, but he wants a relationship with her. He wants to establish his love for her and not just let her kind of try to, you know, touch and run and, and get out of there. And in the process, I'm sure that Jairus there, he's just losing it. His kid's like, you know, at the brink of death, and Jesus is, like, stopping to have a little conversation with, you know, this old woman. But as he's, as he heals this, uh, this older woman, as, as um, he's having this conversation with her, the servants of Jairus come, and they tell her that it's too late, that, that, you know, uh, the little girl has, has died. And Jesus's only words to Jairus are, are, uh, don't be afraid, only believe. And so Jesus goes with him to the house and, and he throws all the, the hired mourners out of the house and he goes in and he takes the girl's hand, much like, uh, you know, the, the parents would there as they go to wake her up in the morning, you know, and kind of just gently grabs her and says, come on, get up. You know, he, said, he says to her, little girl, arise. And it would be so much similar in the phrasing that, that the parents would use and just gently kind of grabs her and pulls her up. And in doing so, uh, he brings her back to life. Now, the story that we saw last week, it was the first one that we looked at, was kind of this idea of, uh, or not the idea, but the, the structure of last week was this Mark and Sandwich, that Mark, uh, he employs this technique again and again. But with last week, we saw uh, the the woman who is placed in the middle there, who has been healed, she 
is the key to that passage. You, you can't take those things separately. Mark purposefully places that text between the beginning of this uh, request from Jairus and the healing of Jairus' daughter because it's meant to say and meant to, to communicate to the readers and the hearers that the type of faith that we need to have is the type of faith that that woman had. And in short, Jairus would need to have that type of faith also. You know, that faith was immediately demonstrated to him there. And then he hears, your daughter's dead. And Jesus's only words to him are, you know, don't be afraid, only believe. And so this woman's miracle, it's really an aid to faith for Jairus. He's already seen what G- Jesus can do with his own eyes right there and immediately. And so it, similarly this morning, we find another kind of a, another sandwich that Mark kind of puts together here for us, a, a technique that he uses again and again. And when I was studying it, I was kind of, was kind of coming at it. It took me a long time in trying to figure out what actual passage I was going to teach here. It started off with like just six verses and I was like, okay, I'll do 13. And then I was like, no, that one doesn't make sense on its own. And I, I've been wrestling with it for like literally a week. And then yesterday I kind of figured it out finally. But, and it makes all the difference because what happens here, we'll, we'll see this, this idea of John the Baptist here. He's kind of the center of that sandwich, you'll see. Um, He's, he's the middle there and kind of is, is something that Mark really wants to bring home to the readers. And so we pick up, uh, starting the chapter, in verse, uh, verse 1, um, 1 through 6, this first idea of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. It says that he went away uh, from, from Galilee and came to uh, his hometown. He was in, previously in Capernaum, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he begins to teach in the synagogue. And so Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And, and basically, <clears throat> as we switch from Capernaum, where he's wildly successful and has these massive multitudes following him, now coming back to the hometown, he's not so much the hometown hero as we see in the text. He doesn't have a parade or a welcoming party. Really what happens is he ends up being rejected and, and scoffed at. Now, in Capernaum, it's, it's such a different contrast because in Capernaum, he's, he's openly welcomed and people seek him out. But in Nazareth, he's misunderstood and, and, and is rejected. Now, Nazareth is a, it's a really small town. In, uh, it, Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament in Josephus's writings, in, uh, in any of the rabbinic literature of uh, the Mishnah or Talmud. But later, you know, you, you find about it, and, and in fact, you can go and visit it. But basically, the area was, it's like a really obscure, like, desolate kind of town area, and it was about 60 acres, and probably no more than 500 people lived there, like at max. Like, we're talking, like, small town life. Everybody knew each other. Everybody was was familiar with, um, with the families and things like that, and because it was Jesus's hometown, they knew who he was. And so Jesus gets up to, to to speak in the synagogue as he would on the Sabbath. And the people there, it says in verse 2, are astonished at what he's saying. Uh, his wisdom that he communicates as he breaks down scripture, the things that he does, that again here we see in the text, they captivate people, but not in the same way that they have previously. Now, because he spoke so highly, because he was so eloquent and communicated, 
you know, just the with authority from the scripture, the people they ended up rejecting him. And here and here's why. This is what they say. You know, that they they come at him with a couple different angles, but basically their case is this. We know who you are. You have an apprentice with, you know, a famous rabbi where you would get this knowledge because their questions, you know, they're astonished at his teaching. And it says, and here's what they say, where did he get these things? You know, what is the wisdom given to him? How were such mighty works done by his hands? There, it's, there's confusion here in their minds because he hasn't apprenticed under a famous rabbi. Um, you know, they, they know his home life. His, his wisdom couldn't be accounted for at home because his, you know, his dad was a carpenter. And so he had the family trade in turn. He was a carpenter. And um, so it's not like his dad was this scholarly sort of figure who would be able to pass down great wisdom to him. But rather than celebrating this, they, they realize he has some authority. They see the mighty works that he's done. But rather than, than celebrating his success here, rather than, than joining in to what he's doing, they're skeptical and they attempt to discredit his ministry. And they do this through a couple different phrases that they use. Look at the insults that they throw out here at Jesus. In, uh, in verse 3, first they say, is this not the carpenter? Now, in the Jewish world, that wasn't really like a bad thing. You know, it's like you were expected to have a trade and, and you were expected to especially to carry on that sort of thing. That's why, uh, you know, in, in our day and age, the way that the way that um, if you think about it this way, uh, a lot of the people who have the the names that that we that are, that are most common today, like Smith. Miller, things like that. Those are because those were professions from those uh, those families, and so if if you know there was like a modern day Jesus, this you know potentially could be like Jesus Carpenter. You know that would be like a very uh, similar way in which they identified who they were. So they knew exactly who this person was. They saw the lineage. It's like you're in the Carpenter family, and that's what you do. That's the trade that you're going to learn. People didn't you know jump from like you're a carpenter and now you're a fisherman. You're like you're in that that section of society. You didn't jump industries in that sort of way. And so Jesus would have been respectable in the Jewish side of things, but however in in Nazareth they didn't particularly esteem, you know, trade and and that profession very highly. Um he didn't ha- what what their their main beef with him in their main point uh, is that he didn't have this religious pedigree or they didn't have this, he didn't have a rabbi in his family that, you know, somewhere along the line that they could link into. Now, additionally, they also call him a son of Mary. Now, calling a person uh, the son of a woman, as they do here in the text, it's, that's not normal either, quite obviously. Women didn't hold, you know, uh, that uh, place of authority at that time and in that culture. So you wouldn't be like, you know, essentially, more or less, they're, they're doing a couple things here. They're calling him a mama's boy. You know, they're calling him out as, as saying like, you know, we, you know, you, your father isn't even important here. But then additionally, on top of that, what they're also doing is they're insinuating illegitimacy. You know, that, that Joseph wasn't his, his, 
uh, his true father, his earthly father. And so therefore, they're coming at him even more so uh, with the, these accusations. And then finally, it tells us that they took offense at him. Um, you know, and, and meaning as a, he became a stumbling block to them. Now, Mark uses that several times throughout the text, uh, it, not just in this passage, but throughout the whole book of, of Mark. But each time it's used as to designate something that would ex- uh, obstruct people from, from coming to faith in Christ, coming to faith um, and, and exercising that today. And in our text today, it's no different. In, in verse 3, there, the offense that takes place there, it demonstrates that the amazement that they say, that they're, they're amazed at his teaching, it wasn't one of, of saving faith. It was one of, uh, of scoffing. They're, they're uh, doubting him. Now, verse 4 through 6, he goes on, Jesus says to them, he responds to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few of the sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus takes this this phrasing that, um, you know, he, he says to, to uh, the people there, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. Now, he's not quoting scripture here. This is kind of like a current wisdom phrase from the day, something that that they would be familiar with. And he applies it to three areas. He applies it to uh, Nazareth, to his hometown, to his relatives, and, and to his own household. Each of these circles becomes more restricted and more intimate. The community in which he is, is seeking to reach, there's different levels of community. And, and um, we won't have a chance to look at it this morning, but in, in future weeks, we're going to look at um, how we're on mission in community and how the idea of these varying levels of intimacy and, and varying levels of... Um, you know, of social, uh, you know, responsibility and social awareness, those areas, how we're able to, to integrate our lives with those different areas. And so Jesus did a very similar thing here. He was both seeking to be effective in his own household, among his, his extended family, his wider relatives, and also in his hometown. Now, these people, they know him. Their exposure to Jesus here, their exposure to his teaching, it doesn't lead to saving faith. Just because you're around Jesus doesn't mean you know Jesus. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you know Jesus. Just because Jesus is in your family and you're, he's your half-brother doesn't mean you know him. That is what he's, he's trying to point out here through the text and, and, what, and what he's communicating. And not only, it, not only is he come back with this saying to them, but in verse 6, it says that he marvels because of their unbelief. The conclusion of this passage here in, in verse 6, it falls on this look at the, the unwillingness of the people of Nazareth to believe who he is. The thing that amazes you know, Jesus here about Nazareth and, and about humanity as he goes to these different cities is not how sinful they are, but how unwilling they are to receive a, a free gift, how unwilling they are to receive from him. And so here, you know, in our lives, I mean, like, 
the the great I, I can't even tell you how many times in the last month I've had the conversation with you know like most frequently I've had it with um with a friend and was talking about you know he, who's not a believer and he's just like well how come like why doesn't doesn't like God do something for me like right now like right here right on the spot you know I'm trying to like communicate to him like he's done stuff He's done, you know, and taking him through the passage. He's, he's demonstrated his love toward you and, and, and looked at things like that. And, and in this text here, it really displays, because they've seen his mighty works. They've heard his authority. They've seen him do great healings, you know. It, it, um, but their greatest obstacle is not Jesus' failure to act, not his failure to do a great work for them to see, but the greatest obstacle to faith for people is their unwillingness to believe. Jesus can work with, you know, he can work with unbelief, but unwilling to believe, that's something completely different. You know, you can come to Jesus and you can say, I, I don't believe and I don't know how, and I don't, you know, it doesn't make sense, and Jesus can work with that. But if you've heard, and you've seen, and you're unwilling, that's something completely different. Of course, Jesus will, will try to draw you and to show you his, his goodness and his faithfulness. But ultimately, the greatest obstacle to faith is the unwillingness, not Jesus's ability to demonstrate his love or to act on behalf, uh, um, you know, and, and to, to show who he is. Now we pick up in verse 6. He marvels because of their unbelief, but then immediately after that, he goes about other villages teaching. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing uh, for their journey except a staff, no bread, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals um, not to put on two tunics. So Jesus transitions. He's not accepted in his hometown. He's rejected. He goes to surrounding towns, other familiar areas that, um, that are near to there. And so he begins to teach. Now, when Jesus came on the scene from the beginning, he had no intention of working alone. The, the idea was not like for him to come and just to do completely all of the work, all by himself. From the very beginning, he called, he designated, and he he selected uh, and taught a group of followers. Now, as he continues here, uh, um, their training in this text, he does this by sending them. This is kind of their first like little test mission. They go as representatives. They're commissioned, empowered, and instructed by him as to what they're going to do. Now he goes out first, and he the disciples are with him, and goes out again among the villages teaching. The dominant purpose of Jesus's ministry, the primary purpose here, is to proclaim the gospel, to to teach the word of God. And when we teach the word of God, when when just as as Jesus did, as we place a focus and importance upon the word of God, <clears throat> it brings a clearer idea of who he is and it brings to you know to our minds um, the importance of the mission 
and where he's going. And so uh, as we're a word-centered church, we're constantly being reminded of the gospel. We're constantly encountering the gospel and constantly encountering Jesus's love for the world. Now, what that does for us also is it reminds us as that we're a part of a mission to help people meet Jesus. And in Matthew 28, it calls it the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And here we use a little bit different uh, verbiage just to make it <clears throat> you know, a little bit more simple in, you know, not that we're getting away from the Great Commission. We're a part of the Great Commission, but if we had to say it in one sentence quickly, we want people to meet Jesus, okay? And when we meet, when we say we want them to meet Jesus, because our English language is not very, uh, you know, there's not a lot of other words, ways to say this. We mean in that Greek word way where we mean continually meet and be discipled by Jesus. So if you want to know what we're about, we want people to meet Jesus. That's basically kind of what it comes down to. And so because we're words in our church, because we encounter that often in the scripture, it reminds us of that. Now, we see the disciples getting ready to be sent out here. And it seems a little bit premature, considering their track record is pretty awful up to this point. But Jesus does it anyways. His, his, Jesus kind of just makes his own rules, you know, here in this situation and previously. In the calling of his disciples, that was something that was completely unique because no rabbis called disciples. The, the, the disciples would kind of like look at, find the rabbi that they wanted to follow, and then they would go and be like, hey, can I be, you know, your apprentice and follow you? And, you know, the rabbi would begin a training, you know, uh, sort of ministry with the disciple there. But here, Jesus goes and he handpicks disciples. He's done things differently. Furthermore, when rabbis would send uh, their disciples out, okay, you don't need to be discipled by me anymore. You need to, you know, when you're ready to, to be on your own, they sent them out in the authority of the Torah. But when Jesus sends, he sends in his own authority. He doesn't deal with, you know, the, the law as the rabbis did. He creates his own authority and sends them out in his own name. Now, as I was saying, it's a little bit kind of seems premature that the disciples are going to get sent up here. Up to this point in chapter one, we saw that they impeded his mission a couple times already. They've become frustrated with him in the boat and they're like, don't you love us? What's the deal? You're going to let us die. They're screaming at him. And uh, in chapter three, they opposed him. So it's like, not the greatest group of representatives to send out and be like, all right, guys, go for it. <clears throat> but it's interesting because what we see here is that the fulfillment uh, of, of the word of God, it doesn't depend on the vessel, you know, or, or the, the work or the merit of the missionary who is going to go out, but it depends upon the authoritative call and the equipping of Jesus Christ. Okay? Those who Christ sends, the... Their, their preparedness is not important. The call is important, and the authority of that call, and the equipping. So it doesn't matter if you don't feel prepared. It doesn't matter if you're actually not prepared, or, you know, if you feel like you're prepared or you're not prepared. There's a lot of different things that would kind of go into it. It's like, oh, not me, Lord. But <clears throat> the thing that matters most is, do you have the authoritative call 
of Jesus sending you into that mission, and he will equip you to do that which he's calling you to do. Now, he sends them out two by two, and he gives them authority over unclean spirits. Sending the disciples out in, in pairs like this, it was something that you would actually, it was kind of a part of the Jewish custom for traveling. So something that was, that was pretty regular, but it did a couple things also. It was important um, in several aspects. It provided company for, you know, for your journey, and also common counsel uh, as you kind of went along. And it also provided complementary gifts. Okay, provided complementary gifts for uh, for the journey. This is super important because um, let me give you an example. At the church I was at previous to this, my my gifting and the the set that I was working in there was I was working in an administrative sort of sense, and I rule at being an administrator. I'm you know I am an awesome gifted administrator when I'm not administrating for myself. I'm really terrible <laughs> administrating for myself. Because it, when, when I'm in a different role and my gifting is more suited towards preaching and vision, and I'm asking the Lord, like, Lord, what are we going to do? And as I'm like, I want to do this. And the Lord's like, that sounds like a good idea. And I think, you know, I'm in that. And then like, he's like, but you're thinking too small. You should think bigger. And so as I try to balance the two of preaching and vision, and then I go to plan, I'm like, but then the Lord's just going to make it bigger. So maybe I just might not, I shouldn't plan that at all because it's just going to get thrown away anyways. And so I put off planning and then, you know, I come back to preaching and vision. And so it's hard to carry those two, you know, the, those two sides of it. It's hard to carry those two different giftings. And so various people in, in our body here have done different administrative tasks for me it won't get done. Like, I'll, I'll do it, and then I'll be like, eh, I'll scrap it, throw it away. And, and I, the, the giftings and the complementary um, nature of other people in the body of Christ using their gifts, it allows the, the different people in the church to focus on their primary gifting that the Lord is calling them to at that moment. Right now, I'm not called to be a primarily administrative guy. I can be if I have to be by the grace of God, but right now I'm, I, I can't function in that way completely. And so you guys have functioned in that way for me at different points and different levels. Some people have taken up different tasks and other tasks, and, and together you've come alongside me as pairs in the journey together, allowing us to work together and to, to give our all in those specific tasks. And so that's exactly what Jesus was calling them to do here. I'm sure that he was sending out, you know, he's sending out, um, you know, someone who is a great preacher and, and someone who has great vision like that. And then you see someone else who is, just has a great love for the people. And like they want to just do like people ministry and get in with them and like sympathize with them. And so they kind of balance each other out. One guy's just like, you know, going for it, preaching hardcore. And the other guy's like, he's like the hospital ministry guy, like praying with people, holding their hands, meeting them in the room, loving on them. Um, and so Jesus sends them out really wisely in this way. Now, uh, he sends them out. And then he gives them authority over unclean spirits, which basically what, he, what the text is in, uh, 
Mark's seeking to do there is he's seeking to notate that this is another mark of the inbreaking kingdom of God that we've seen in past chapters, that, that Jesus is now passing on his power and authority to others to overcome unclean spirits, overcome the demonic realm. The inbreaking kingdom of God is in fact uh, arrived here in the text and is now uh, starting to spread. Now he tells them to bring nothing with them uh, for their journey except a staff and uh, here's what they're allowed to bring. They're allowed to bring a staff as a walking stick, you know, or for protection against animals. They're allowed to bring a tunic and a belt, and then they get to bring sandals. That's pretty much it. Now, a couple things. Jesus just isn't really mean. He's like, you ain't bringing anything. <clears throat> the four items that are required here of the twelve— these are the belongings that God instructs the Israelites to take with them on their, on their journey out of Egypt. They're the exact same items that he uses. In Exodus 12, 11, he says this, In this manner you shall eat, and he's talking about while they're eating the Passover here. Here's how you're going to eat it, because you're getting out of here soon. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. <clears throat> These items that Jesus is, is telling them to bring here, they're to remind them of their exodus out of Egypt. They're, they're to remind them that what they're about to do is something as foundational as their removal from the bondage of Egypt. They are about to go out in his authority, in, in his ability, and to work on his behalf sending out the message that Jesus rescues and saves. Just as God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, so will you be my heralds going out, proclaiming that I rescue and save. They're to, to bring these things, and that's a reminder to them, but also practically they serve, you know, as, uh, as um, you know, a way for them to rely on, more intensely upon the Lord. You know, it's not like they have to bring food, they have to bring money, they don't have to bring, you know, a bag or anything. It's just like, we're going to go, we're going to move quick, we're going to get work done, and the Lord's going to provide for us. Here's what, here's what they're not to bring. They're not to bring no bread, no bag, no money, not more than one tunic, which I don't know why you'd need two. It's like probably pretty hot. Um, I get hot easy. <laughs> the barest of essentials that they bring here. It ensures that they're not placing their trust in themselves, but it's pushing them to place their trust in the one who has sent them. He sends them, he will equip them. Just because they don't have it then doesn't mean that they're not going to have it when they need it. Their minimal, uh, you know, their minimal baggage and it allows them to serve in a greater capacity because they're not worried about where they're going to store their stuff, what they're going to bring, how they're going to transport their food. Oh, our food's going to go bad. Or, you know, it's like, look, like, let's just go. I'm focused on the mission. Their service, what Jesus is trying to help them understand, is their service is, is based upon their dependence upon God. Not upon what they're going to do for God, but upon, it's going to flow out of their dependence upon him. Now, in our text here, you know, dependence on, on God and on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends despite 
their material shortfalls and also despite the unanswered questions about where are we going to get all this stuff? That is going to characterize what it means to depend on God, to go when you don't have those questions answered. Now, Jesus tells them this, one, so he fosters their dependence upon uh, God, but also it ensures that the disciples, they seek the advancement of the gospel and not that they're seeking to kind of like get cozy and be comfortable and settle down. He's allowing them to be, to be focused and to stay on mission. Jesus sends us into mission only with what we need, not with what we want or desire. Okay, super important to remember that because oftentimes it's like, well, I'll go there if I have this and this and this. It's like we're like making this like ransom list from Jesus. Like, okay, I will do that, but you got to provide this, 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 this. It's like it's not a job offer. It's a mission. Okay, you can't you can't ask for like health insurance if Jesus says go. You just got to go. He sell, he he tells them to just go bare bones here because it allows them to focus on the gospel. When we get all these other things around us, it takes us off mission, distracts from the mission. Jesus is, is communicating to them the importance of the mission. And now he gives them some instructions about what it means, um, you know, what, what they may encounter and how to deal with it. In verse 10, he says to them, when, whenever you enter a house, they, uh, stay there, until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off your dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So the first thing he says, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart. Basically, the disciples here are to be grateful guests. They're to, you know, not to just kind of hop around in the city like, oh, thanks, you know, and kind of like, well, how come they only stayed with us for like one night if we're welcome here? You know, and that culture, the hospitality was a huge thing. So if you didn't stay with them, there was like, Something was up, basically. And so Jesus tells them, just stay there, settle down, hang out with the one family that accepts you in, minister to the city. If they don't receive you, he tells them what to do. He says, if any place won't receive you, if they won't listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. It doesn't mean anything to us, but it means something to them. Basically what, what he's saying here is that this idea of shaking off the dust from your feet, it was, a, it was this idea that, um, that would happen like as Jews came in out of, uh, um, from like the Gentile territories back into the Jewish territories, they would, they would shake off the dust from their feet like as they were kind of coming to the border so as to not get pollutant Gentile soil into the, the Holy Land. And so what Jesus is actually saying here is to, to these people that he's about to send them to, to these Jewishes, Jewish villages, is if they don't receive you, do that same thing in their city. They'll see what you're doing. And what, what he's doing there is he's telling them is that, um, that basically it's, a, it's an indictment that these villages basically are heathen. <laughs> That's basically like what he's trying to like tell them. Like they will not receive, they will not hear, and we're just going to like count them as heathen. That doesn't mean that he's never going to go back to them, but even within the promised land, 
like there's plenty of, of people that they're going to encounter that will reject Jesus, the promised one. So they go out and they proclaim in verse 12 that people should repent and they cast out many demons and, anoint, uh, and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. So in verse 12, we find the summary of the mission. It's kind of like this big catalog of terms that Mark uses of, that he's been using up to this point of proclamation and, and repentance and casting out demons and healing. But now we come to another term where it talks about anointing with oil. It's, there's no, only another place that we find this in the New Testament. It's in James 5.14, talking about anointing with oil for the healing of sick. The oil is not magical. It's not what he's trying to get at. What he's getting at is it's a representation of the Holy Spirit being upon someone and the dependence upon God to heal them. He's not saying like, get out your magic oil, you know, and say the formula and, and, you know, make it happen. In in James 5.14, when it talks about it, it says, anoint with oil and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. It's that dependence upon God. You know, I, I, sometimes I kind of consider our culture here, I wonder like, you know, if we didn't have, like, the medicine and we weren't so reliant and dependent upon it, how, how much more fervent our prayers would be and how much more, you know, how much more often we would see, like, the Lord work in that way. So you're not like, well, someone got bit by a rattlesnake. It's like, well, we don't have, like, anti-venom for that. It's like our only option is to, like, pray. You know, it's not saying you shouldn't, like, go get anti-venom. But, <clears throat> but I mean, it's just this idea of of, you know, dependence upon God, what he's, what he's seeking to communicate there. Now, they go um, out and they accomplish these things that Jesus told them to do in dependence uh, and um, in obedience to God, in dependence upon him and empowered by Jesus to do all that he intends them to accomplish. They're successful in their ministry which, like, they shouldn't have been because, like, they've been blowing it. But they actually go out and they do it, and they do a good job. They've, they've actually accomplished it. They preach as they were supposed to. They heal as they were supposed to. They cast out demons as they were supposed to. And it, it's so neat to see that because it's like, okay, Jesus can work with a bunch of people who don't have it together. You know, it, it, it lifts the hearts of us who, you know, just like, ugh, like they're actually with Jesus and we're not with Jesus and we're blowing it. But we can see how the disciples here, they kind of typify believers throughout like all generations who kind of started out blowing it, but who are sent out by the Lord. And it didn't matter, you know, who you were or what your existing theology was or how, how, how many like, you know, letters you have after your name or, you know, any of that stuff. It, the only thing that, that, you know, prepared them for ministry was being with Jesus. It wasn't, you know, none of, none of these guys were prepared. Like every single one of them was super unprepared to go, and they were probably prematurely sent out, you know, in, in how they felt. But it's only when you go out and you feel unprepared, only when you go out and you feel overwhelmed that you're, you're keenly aware of your desperation and your need for him. And only then will you experience the presence and power of Jesus Christ in your life. That only then will you experience his work mightily on your behalf when you're absolutely aware that, like, this is not going to work unless Jesus shows up 
it's only in those moments. If you go out in pride and thinking like you got it, you know, could be could be pretty scary. <laughs> can just you know a, a big flop. Not only in you know you may be outwardly successful in whatever you're seeking to do, you know, for the Lord, but you know it, it comes down to obedience and the call of what Jesus tells them to do. You see that even in. Um, you know, even in the call of Gideon, how his army was in Judges 6 and 7, where the army was too big. And he's like, oh, 10,000, that's way too many people. Cut it down. And it's like, all of a sudden, it's like, we only have 300 guys. This is not a good idea. But yet, they go out in obedience, and the Lord gives them the victory. You know, that type of obedience is what Jesus is looking for. So the primary task here is, is gospel proclamation. These guys go out, they proclaim the word of God, and they affirm it again and again. And and when you do that, it it affirms to your hearers that God is more important than everything else. You're not caught up in the fluff. You're not caught up in just the busyness of life. When you're returning to the word of God, it reminds you that Jesus is more important than everything else that's going on. And now we transition into this awkward passage, or so I thought, in um, verse 14. This um, idea, this whole thing of like John the Baptist, it's like, okay, Jesus rejected a Nazareth. And then all of a sudden, like the disciples get to go on like this trip and they're not prepared. And then John's killed. It's like, oh. This is kind of part of like the area where I was struggling and kind of looking at it. But here actually is the center of what Mark is seeking to kind of bring home. There's only two passages in the gospel of Mark that are not about Jesus and both are about John. Both are about John the Baptist. In chapter 1, John is the forerunner of Jesus. He goes before Jesus proclaiming the, uh, the coming Messiah. And he, um, in our passage today, he's the forerunner again. But in this, time, in, th- in this passage, it's a different sorts. He's the forerunner of Jesus' death. Both John and Jesus are executed by these political tyrants who basically they're, they kind of go back and forth. They, they like him, but they don't like him, and they don't really want to they don't really want to kill him, but they end up succumbing to like social and political pressure of like, oh, I guess I have to sort of thing. John's executed here in our text by Herod Antipas, who gives in to uh, Herodias. And in Jesus's case, uh, Pilate, you know, he gives in to the angry mob there. Both John and Jesus, very similarly, die as, as victims of kind of like this political sort of situation. And they both go quietly. You know, as Isaiah talks about, um, they go as sheep before their shearers. That, that uh, messianic passage there, remembering Jesus. And so, uh, King Herod, basically, here's the situation. In verse 14, King Herod, he hears about uh, Jesus's name. It's become known, it says. And, and some said that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And, and so, Herod's hearing of Jesus following immediately this mission of of the disciples. Perhaps it's because of their mission that he has heard um, of this. Now, the account here, it begins with like Herod's, you know, paranoia over John being raised from the dead. He's like, what in the world? Like, he hears about Jesus. He's like, what's going on? Like, all of a sudden, there's this guy. He's got a massive following again. I thought I killed John, you know? Um, And basically, he's worried 
that John has returned to kind of haunt him here. He hears about this growing reputation of Jesus, and it it makes him quite uneasy because he thought that he had silenced the one who is calling out his sin. He thought by killing John, he has silenced, you know, this this attack upon uh, his actions. However, at the same time, you know, we find in the text here, it says, you know, that Herod was quite drawn to John and to Jesus. You know, he, he has like this, this um, you know, he's, he's drawn into the words that he says. Now, in verse 17, and um, we get to kind of hear a bit of the story. Initially, when the first passage that we saw this was in Mark chapter 1. Okay, that was where, where, um, where it tells us in Mark 1 that John has been arrested. And then it says, therefore, Jesus, and kind of we go into another story in Mark chapter 1. But we never find out what happens. It's like, you just never know. And so what we're looking at here is not chronological, but it's a flashback. It's like Mark's kind of like put this thing in here randomly. Because that was part of the thing I was like reading. I'm like, what is going on? I was trying to figure this out for like forever. And realizing, you know, that what's happening here, Mark has put this here as a flashback. The first verses here that we look at um, in the passage 14 through 16 are the summary of what has happened in the present time right after Jesus's ministry here as, as he's, uh, as the disciples go out. And then uh, as we pick up in verses 17 through 29, this is the flashback. Here's the story of what happens. Uh, basically, here's what happens. Herod persuades Herodias. This is going to get real crazy, so you got to like listen in close. There's like four Herods, and uh, I'm just going to try to simplify it. The Herod of our story is Herod Antipas, okay? He was the second of four who, who ruled from the death of his father, Herod the Great, in 4 BC until AD 39. And his official title was the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Now, Herod Antipas persuaded Herodias, the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip, son of Herod the Great's third wife, <laughs> Miriam II, to divorce her husband and to marry him. So there's seriously like a crazy chart that I was like looking at this, trying to like plan this out. But basically like this is... Herod's dad had like four wives. One of them had this, you know, who's Herod's half-brother. And basically what happens is uh, Herod convinces Herodias to divorce that uh, Herod Philip and to marry him. But in order to do that, Herod, he had to divorce his own wife, who was the daughter of uh, Eratos, king of Nabatea, which was just east of the Dead Sea. So this is on his part, it was actually kind of dumb because there was kind of like a treaty involved around it. Um, but this this portion here, all this drama within, like exactly how it sounds, that's exactly how like all the Herods were. Like all this crazy drama of like super ruthless, super social messed up, like tons of tons of problems. But this this marriage here, it forms kind of the backdrop of the death of John. Now, uh, our text reveals here that John was critical of the marriage, rightly so. It's a little bit messed up. Um, 
it says in uh, verse 20 that as John spoke out here, Herod feared John. Herodias wanted to kill John because, you know, John the Baptist is calling her out. Like, you can't do that. You know, it's not right. It's not according to the law. And so, however, Herod, in verse 20, he feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he uh, heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. So John doesn't shy away from speaking the truth. He understood that the proclamation of God's word included a responsibility to call sin, sin. He, he, he understood the weight of his, uh, you know, the authority that was given to him. Now, Herod here, he finds like this fascination with John. He, it says, it's interesting there, it says that he, he feared him. He knew he was a righteous and holy man, he, and he was kind of perplexed by him. He was, he, he didn't quite understand, and, but yet he heard him gladly. It's basically like, you know, he was hearing a message that he hated, but he liked to hear it. He was kind of like, this does not feel good, but like for whatever reason, I'm drawn to it. And so he kind of sought to protect John and not, you know, and so he only had him in jail. Now, Herodias, she's all, all upset about getting called out. And she plots against John, you know, with like this crazy patience, because we see in verse 21, but an opportunity came uh, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So this guest list is like, you know, the who's who, it's the upper class of Galilee, high officials. And we don't actually hear them say anything in the story, but that's kind of how it is with like people of like that stature. Like it's kind of like what they don't say. It's kind of like what you're afraid of. Like you don't know what they're thinking. You know, so when this incident goes down, it's like they don't actually say anything, but you can kind of just feel, feel like, you know, the eyes on the side of the room, like everybody will kind of watching Herod to see what he's going to do. And, and the weight of him to make a decision that's going to appease them and make him not appear weak in the eyes of uh, these men. Now, Herod's daughter comes in and dances here, and it pleases you know, the guests and Herod. And this daughter was named Salome, who was the daughter of Herodias and Herod Philip. So it's actually not even Herod's daughter anyways. So she dances and he is, you know, there, he's kind of trying to show off here. And so he vows to her, whatever you ask of me, I'll give to you half my kingdom, which basically was a total lie because Rome wouldn't allow you to give away even like one acre. But basically he's just kind of trying to show off. Um, which, you know, backfired on him. <laughs> and so she goes out, like all little kids do, when they're like, I'm going to get you a treat, pick whatever you want. And then they go and like ask their mom, but the mom's like a wicked schemer, you know, and like the daughter's like, I should get like a dessert. And the mom's like, no, you should get John the Baptist's head. Um, you know, so I'm sure that exchange was pretty sad. <laughs> So she goes off and, and, you know, in verse 24 and asked her mother for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist and came in and she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And then in verse 26, it says that the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So he's under this pressure. He's, he's, the ruler of the area, he's completely free, but yet he's under this bondage to the people. He's under the bondage, you know, of this social, you know, peer pressure and, you know, wanting to look powerful. 
And so he does what she wants. He goes off. Herodias, you know, wickedly influences her daughter here. And, and under pressure, Herod agrees. Now, at the end of the text here, it tells us that John's martyrdom here, it brings the arrival of his disciples. John's disciples, they come and they get the body and they go ahead and bury him. And, um, you know, just like Jesus, who, who would have his body come in and taken by Joseph of Arimathea and, and they would hit, you know, Jesus's disciples, like John's disciples would kind of risk, you know, that, um, you know, they would risk the, the social side of it and that, you know, being cast as criminals there and along with Jesus. And so they do uh, a very similar thing here. Now, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So here's like the closing, here's the end of the sandwich. It's like we hear the disciples get sent out, John's little kind of pericope there where, you know, we hear what happened, John gets killed, and then the disciples kind of come home. It's like a little bit awkward, right? I was looking at it, it's like, in, as I was considering, like, you could actually skip 14 through 29. It could be like, disciples went out, disciples came back. But, but Mark here, he puts it here purposefully. And, and what he's doing here, he sandwiches like this crazy brutal account of the martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the disciples and their return to, a, to like put this impression upon his readers of the cost of discipleship. If you're in, here's what you're in for. You know, it, this story doesn't even, it, it's like so not chronological, it doesn't belong in this spot. It's put here to remind the readers and to remind the disciples here of the consequence of following Jesus in a world of greed and, you know, corruption and power and wealth. Like this is what you're in for. What he wants to communicate here is whoever would follow Jesus must first encounter this, this fate of John. If you're reading through, you know, in, in the idea, and you're like, oh, I want to get sent out like the disciples, before you get to the end there, you have to encounter what actually happened to one of the disciples. You encounter the fate of John. His, his death here, John's death, it not only is the forerunner of Jesus's death, but it also prefigures the death of all who would follow after Christ. So what Mark is seeking to communicate here is count the cost. If you want to be a disciple, know what you're getting into. If you want to follow me, know that this is something that you may face. Now, not only does, does, he, um, cons- not only does he say that as, as um, communicating as a disciple, but also the fact that he inserts this execution here of John into the passage, not only does it consider, make us consider what it means for those who want to be disciples, but also for those who want to be on mission with Jesus. Because all disciples have to be on mission with Jesus. The thing is, and as you hear it, you're kind of like, I don't know about this. You know, you're, you, you naturally have that response. It's a totally regular, normal response. But as you consider it, as you consider what actually is going to happen here in the, in the future of the book of Mark, John's death prefigures. And in our, in our case, we look back upon the text. Because initially, Jesus was the one who was sent. Jesus 
was the great missionary. Jesus was the one who condescended from, from glory, from comfort, to come as a man on our behalf. And so we, because Jesus was the great missionary and we serve a missionary God, because, you know, later in, uh, later in John, we see that Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. We are a missionary people and we're sent to help people meet Jesus. That means that we follow Jesus into mission because we're not making up our own mission. Jesus is the great missionary. We follow where Jesus is leading us. We don't make up our own mission. We, he, we have clear instructions where we have the authoritative call of God on our life. He has empowered us and equipped us to live a life on mission for his glory. And we must know, though, as we're a missionary people following a missionary God into mission, it may cost us our lives as it cost him his. It's not too much to ask because it cost him his already. So it's uncomfortable to hear, but this is what Mark is getting at. Consider the cost. Now, maybe it's not like your physical life necessarily, but it may cost you the comforts that you might want. It might cost you the comforts that you've become accustomed to. That doesn't mean that, you know, it has to, because those things could be stewarded for God's glory and used, you know, perfectly fine as the Lord gives you wisdom and, you know, freedom in Christ to do that. But what Mark is saying is don't get off mission if you're in. If you're in, you're in and figure out, you know, where the Lord is leading you as an individual, as a family, as, you know, as a city, be a part of his mission here and count the cost. And so because Jesus came, because he was that great missionary, we worship him, you know, every Sunday and and this morning as, as he was put to death on our behalf, as God raised him from the dead for our justification. Um, That is why we gather and that's why we want people to meet Jesus. And so uh, let's pray and we'll worship him. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you would continue um, by your Holy Spirit to speak to us, Lord, to convict us of sin, Lord. Um, We pray that you would convict us um, just of the areas in our lives, Lord, that we need to, to have you handle. Lord, a lot of them we just don't even know how to handle ourselves and maybe have questions about, Lord, but we want to be submissive to you in all areas of our life. Lord, we need you. Lord, we pray that you would send more workers here to be a part of your mission. Lord, uh, as a people who are here in the city, who are here in the East Bay, who love you, we want to see Jesus exalted here. And so we pray that you would make each one of us intentional to love and serve you, to love and serve one another, and to be a part of what you're doing. We pray that you would send others who are like-minded, Lord, that, um, that would come in and would be able to co-labor alongside us here. We pray, Lord, that you, would, that you would use us as ministers of your gospel to go out, to be sent out like the disciples were sent out, Lord, to go and to build relationships, to proclaim the gospel, Lord. And we pray that you would save lost people in this city. Lord, it's, it's not more simple than what you've given us, Lord. 
to, to make disciples. And so we pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, that you would equip us, Lord, with the ability that you give to help more people meet you. And pray that you would help the, the things of earth just to grow dim, Lord, in comparison to the importance of your mission. Lord, we want to be dependent upon you, Lord. And especially, um, Lord, at this phase, it's painfully obvious, Lord, that we're dependent upon you just for resources, for people. But Lord, as you build your church, Lord, we don't want to lose sight of that dependence upon you, but want to wholly lean upon you. And so lead us into mission, Jesus. And remind us again and again of your worth. We love you. Amen. Amen.